the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When you decide to stop giving because you're not receiving, it begins a downward spiral that we keep passing the buck of doing the right thing to the other person. Praise to the God who reigns above. The sad truth is that it could all be stopped at one moment by one person refusing to perpetuate the spiral. No, you can't move forward until both people are working on the relationship. I get that. But you can stop moving backwards. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Genesis. Throughout the book of Genesis, we have seen God's redemptive plan unfold over the pages of history, a plan that would cause a man to leave his home and dwell in tents most of his life. A plan that brought children to barren wombs, restored families that had been torn apart for decades, and saved thousands of people during a great famine. Last we saw God working through Jacob to bless his sons, giving them their inheritances and prophesying over their lives. Now Jacob will die, but we will see the legacy he left to those around him. We join Pastor Will in Genesis chapter 50 verse 1. But Jacob has, in chapter 49, blessed his sons, and he's finished his race, right? He climbs into bed, and he breathes his last, and he's with the Lord. And while much of the story of Genesis revolves around Abraham and, and Isaac and then Jacob, it does not end in chapter 49. It doesn't end with his death. With Jacob's passing, there is a continuance, a new beginning of sorts in chapter 50, because now the brothers have to figure out where to go from here. And you know, it's, it's very interesting to see where that question takes them. Where do we go from here? I mean, are they, will they fall apart? Will they go back to squabbling? Or will they trust the Lord and pass their faith on to the next generation like Jacob did to them? And so as we come to the end of the beginning, remember Genesis is a book of beginnings and instruction. As we come to the end of the beginning, may the Lord challenge us with these very same questions in order that we might find ourselves right where he wants to be in this long link of faith, that, that we have a place in there, that just like they have their place, we have a place too, and, and that we would find ourselves right where God wants us to be so we can pass it on as well. So chapter 50, verse 1. Joseph fell upon his father's face, wept upon him, and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and the physicians embalmed Israel. So here we come to Jacob, the beginning processes of his burial. Joseph, heart is broken. Wonderful time of 17 years with his father. I think it's actually more than that. But a beautiful time with his father and his family. But now his father has died. After having spent those last moments saying goodbye, he commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So Joseph has Jacob mummified. Now, Egyptian embalmers were a priestly social class held in very high honor for their skill. Um, these guys were like almost like uh, you, you might have bankers or lawyers or whatever. They, they were right up there, you know, as far as their status in society. So shortly after death, they would go through this embalming process. They would remove the brain through the nostrils, then the, the intestines, not through the nostrils. They would then fill those empty cavities with aromatics and spices. Uh, then the vital organs would be heated 
uh, until they were hardened so they could be intactly removed. They'd be placed in jars that would be placed around the coffin or the casket. The body would then be tanned and wrapped in linens, and that would conclude the process. It took about 40 days, and at that time they felt like it would be preserved. Now, of course, the Egyptians did that because they believed that you would need all that stuff on your next journey. For Joseph, it was just, that's how you did burials. That's how he'd done burials since he had been you know, in Egypt. So that's what he did for his father. And so it says in verse 3, and 40 days were fulfilled for him, the 40 days to to, uh, embalm him. For so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians then mourned him a total of three score and 10 days or 70 days. A score is 20. So the total time of the mourning was 70 days. High-ranking officials in Egypt were mourned for 30 days after their embalming, which shows us then just the high esteem given to Joseph still by the Egyptians. The famine's over. I mean, Joseph's not really doing anything uniquely special as a government official that we know about, um, but he's still held in very high esteem that they would mourn his father as if he was a high-ranking Egyptian official. And so it says, when the days of verse 4 of his mourning were past, that Joseph spoke unto the house of Pharaoh, or the attendants of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying this, my father made me swear, saying, lo, I am dying. In my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up, I pray you, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, according as he has made you to swear. Now, the reason Joseph couldn't appear before Pharaoh, it's not that things had changed, but due to Joseph being in mourning, which means he wouldn't have shaved and he would not have bathed during that time. Therefore, he would be unfit to approach Pharaoh. Now, you might be thinking that's gross. You have to realize that most people didn't do that with much frequency back then. The shaving in particular was not something that was common. So the shaving and the bathing, it was not like all of a sudden Joseph's walking around looking like the stinky kid, you know, from Charlie Brown or something like that. He would be kind of more normal. The reason, of course, this is a problem is because the Egyptians... They don't like dirt. They don't like being dirty. So the Pharaoh, who would go through all his ritual daily cleansings, nothing dirty could come in his presence. So Joseph had to come to the attendants to get permission. They bring it to Pharaoh. He tells him about you know the promise that he made to his dad. And Pharaoh says, keep your promise. Joseph, go for it. So Joseph, verse 7, went up to bury his father. But notice this. And with him went up, it says, all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the house of Joseph and his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. Now the trip to Canaan was over 300 miles. The Egyptian group followed them as far as the border of Egypt and Canaan, where they held a final morning before the sons would take the body into Canaan for burial, verse 10. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which just means that the border there of of, of the Jordan. So they come to the edge of the the promised land or Canaan, and it says there that they mourned with a very, a great and very sore lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father for seven days. So seven days in this place, they mourned his dad yet again. And this was the last shot for the Egyptians to join in the mourning. And so it says, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning in the floor of Atad, they said, wow, this guy must have been important. This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of it was now changed to Abel Mizraim, or the mourning of Egypt, which is, Mizraim is another name for Egypt, which is beyond Jordan. And so, 
They hold this morning, and then the sons, verse 12, go into the land, leave the Egyptians behind. That would have been kind of threatening to see all these chariots and all these individuals come into the Canaan, Canaanites' land. That would have not been a good idea, politically speaking. So his sons did unto him according as he commanded him, for his sons carried him. Notice not all the others. His sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for possession of a burying place of Ephron, or from Ephron, the Hittite. And it was before Mamre, or that big oak tree that Abraham lived under a lot. And so Joseph returned unto Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father. After that, he had buried his father. And thus, Jacob, his body joins the body of his wife Leah in burial, as well as all the other patriarchs. This tiny little field with a tiny little cave, I imagine, which seemed so inconsequential, probably catching the attention of no one of importance, but it served as a marker of faith that all the land belonged to them by God's promise and would belong to their descendants someday in the future. It's interesting because when you look at God's promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did any of them ever see its full fulfillment? Nope. In fact, if you flip over to Hebrews 11, and you might want to keep a finger there because we're going to go back there again later on. But Hebrews 11, in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11. In verse 13 of Hebrews 11, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You know what? If it doesn't happen, it's okay. This world's not my home. God will bring it to pass in his time. For they that say such things declare plainly that they do seek a a land, a homeland, a country. Truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out of, they might have had opportunity to go back, to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Listen, they didn't see it on this side. They saw something far grander on the other side. And you know, you may not see your dreams come true. You may not even see some of the things that God puts on your heart actually come to pass in your lifetime. But maybe your faithfulness will result in others enjoying its benefits. And isn't that worth it? Aren't we seeking something beyond ourselves anyway? And isn't our heavenly reward for faithfulness what we're really going for, right? That's the one that's going to last forever. Well, The burial's done, Joseph and the brothers return home. But in verse 15, we find that a problem arises as they got to figure out what to do without dad around anymore. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and he will certainly requite us of all the evil which we did unto him. The word there, saw, when they saw their father was dead, it's not like, you know, they all of a sudden buried him and thought, oh, he's dead. They the word there means to understand, the, the comprehension, the reality started to sink in. Can you imagine? I mean, it's a 300-mile trip home, and now dad's not with you anymore. There's no connection anymore. It's just you and Joseph. And when the reality sunk in that life was going to go on without dad being around, some of the old patterns crept back up. It mentions here they thought, peradventure, Joseph will hate us. Now, peradventure, the Hebrew word there, is not normally translated. It's not normally a word. It's usually a marker to describe intense emotion or deep thought. And so before we hammer the brothers, I want you to just kind of picture in your mind what might have been going on in this situation. I mean, you're, you're heading back to Egypt. It's a, it's a long trip. 300 miles has taken at least a couple of weeks. And as you're doing that, you're looking around, and what do you see? a massive amount of 
Egyptian dignitaries, very powerful dignitaries. You see Joseph surrounded by all of these dignitaries. You're leaving behind the land that you've always known, and you're walking into his seat of power. And not only that, but from the reaction we see from Joseph in contrast to his brothers, you see your brother is very sad and he's mourning. And I imagine the question probably popped into somebody's head, what if he becomes bitter for all those lost years with that? Instead of you know, thinking about, wow, thanks God for all the years I had with dad. What if he looks back and he starts to get angry about the years that could have been? And what if that bitterness turns to the source of those lost years, which would be who? Them. As they are marching back to Egypt, they would be 100% powerless to stop him from doing whatever he wanted to do with them. And so someone decides to bring up the point, what happens if he all of a sudden turns on us. The word there, hate us, means what if he's holding a grudge? What if he's holding a grudge? And then from there it goes to now, he will certainly requite us or pay us back. And it's actually, the word is there twice in the Hebrew, which means it's doubled for intensity. The more they contemplated, the more they voiced it and discussed it with each other, the more real the possibility became until it was a certainty that he is going to pay us back for all the evil that we have done to him. And as we'll see in a moment, those fears are completely unwarranted. They're going to break Joseph's heart when they come to him about this this worry they have. So the question we have to ask then is, well, where did the brothers go wrong? Well, the brothers had three areas where they failed. Number one, they had unresolved guilt. Oh, Joseph had forgiven them. But it's pretty clear here that they never fully received God's forgiveness for their actions. Whether they asked or not and whether God did or not, we don't know because we don't have insight into that. But they have not received it yet. They are still walking around with this guilt. And unresolved guilt is one of the most dangerous things a Christian can face because the enemy uses it to put some very ugly ideas into our heads. We feel dirty and unforgiven still, and so what, we, what do we do? We project that attitude onto those we wronged, thinking they see us in that same way of disgust. That they look at us as dirty, that they see us as evil, that they are thinking about us when they see us of that evil thing that we did to them. You know, a large amount of marital arguments could be avoided if we simply didn't project our own feelings of guilt upon our spouse. Hey, sweetie, did you take the trash out? Oh, the trash again, huh? Really? What are you talking about? Oh, I know what you're talking about. That time I forgot to take the trash out twice in a row, and we had worms all over on the side of the road. You're still angry about that, aren't you? I just asked you if you took the trash out. No, you didn't. <laughs> and then you're in this dumb argument. And you're not, you, you, you feel guilty. You have unresolved guilt, and you project it onto them, and they make a comment, and you're ready to rumble. We assume our spouse or our friend or coworker is perpetually angry with us. And any critical comment is rooted in those hostile feelings they have towards us, which the reality is, is that's just how we feel about ourselves, which then leads to the second problem. Not only did they have unresolved guilt, but they assumed the worst about Joseph. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 has been a, a rule of thumb in my life when it comes to other people. It's a very simple verse. It says this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. In other words, love believes the best about someone. As Christians, we're to love one another, we're to love others. And that means thinking the best about them, not the worst. 
Let me ask you a question. Doesn't it hurt you when someone assumes the worst about you? Oh, it stings. You know, you, you, might, you might, you know, plan all this thing or you get this thing together and then you ask a question and it just happens to catch them at the wrong moment and they just snap back at you and you, you know, you just, you've been mad at me all day and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, 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 I'm actually planning something cool. Don't ruin it, you know. <laughs> but then now we're hurt too. Don't you want others to think that you intend the best for them? See, love extends that mindset to others as well. So they assumed the worst about Joseph, that he was out to get them when that was not the case at all. Which brings us to their third area of failure. And this is a big one, guys. They chose to trust their undisciplined assumptions about the unknown rather than act upon what was known. Do you hear that? They chose to trust their undisciplined assumptions about the unknown rather than act based upon what was known. Let me ask you a question. Joseph's treatment of them up to this point, which is reality, should have overruled their fears of what he might do, the area of unreality. Had Joseph ever given them any indication that he held a grudge? Nope, not in the least. Had he ever mistreated them prior to this? Nope. Numerous times Joseph could have killed them or enslaved them, but he'd shown them kindness and forgiveness entirely. We often make this mistake with God. People say it's hard to trust God, but is it or should it be? What, is God, what reason has God given us to make it difficult to trust him? Has he failed us? Did you catch him in a lie? Has he shown himself to be incapable of doing what he said he would do? No. Trusting God should be easy based on that criteria of reality. But see, we give more credence to our own internal musings than God's promise. We give more credence to our own internal assumptions about the unknown rather than look back at God's faithfulness time and time again. And you know, wasn't this where the problem of sin started in the garden? Half God really said, does God really want you to be happy? See, Satan questioned God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's honesty, God's mindset toward them, that he wanted good for them. And Eve decided that God really didn't want what was best for her. And she ate the fruit and then gave to Adam and he disobeyed. This is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says what it says. Think about it. In light of what we just studied, think about it for a moment. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? How does that work? Our own understanding, our own assumptions, our own reasonings. But instead, do what? In all your ways, acknowledge him. Take him into the account. Bring him into the equation. And he'll what? He'll direct your paths and make them straight, Right? That's what we're supposed to do. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. That's going to get you in trouble. In our dealings with God and others, I have found Philippians 4.8 to be a very good rule book for our thought life. What does it say? You know it. Whatsoever things are, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, Think on these things. That's a command. You can think on that. If it doesn't fall into that category, those categories, guess what? It is off limits for your mind. Simple. You know, Bev, because I'm, I'm like the brothers. <laughs> she's more like Joseph. But, you know, I will assume the worst at times, or I will think she's mad at me or whatever, and she'll, she'll ask me the question. She goes, Are what you th- is what you're thinking about me true right now? 
Man, you, 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 no, probably is. Because we think we know. What pride, what arrogance in there. I don't know what's in her heart. I don't know what she's thinking about. And if she tells me, says, I'm not angry with you, I'm not frustrated by you, then what am I supposed to do? Whatsoever things are true. That's what she's told me. So if I decide in my arrogance, I'm going to say, no, 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 I know she's really mad. Now I'm thinking on whatsoever things are false. And now I'm in trouble because I've gone outside the boundaries of where God has allowed this little thing to go. God has given us a very clear rule book for our thought life. And if we obey it, we will be protected from making painful mistakes like the brothers do. Verse 16. So they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, your father did command before he died saying, so shall you say unto Joseph, forgive I pray you now the trespass of your brothers and their sin." For they did it unto you evil. And now we pray you, forgive the trespass of your servant. Do what dad t- told you to do. The, servants of, uh, uh, the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And look at what Joseph does. What's his, what happens when he hears this? It breaks his heart. And Joseph wept when they spoke unto him. Now we have no record of Jacob telling the sons to do this. It doesn't make sense that he would do so and then not tell Joseph, hey, make sure you don't hold a grudge against these guys, Joseph. They, they, I know they're, they're, they got issues, but you know what? They're still your brothers and you need to forgive them. We can't be absolutely sure they are lying, but the evidence leans toward the fact they're making this up. And see, this is a problem with assuming the worst about somebody and trusting your own assumptions over what the person really says and has really done. We take things into our own hands and often respond with sinful behavior. Even if they have done wrong, even if what you have perceived to be true is true, we are commanded by God to overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21, right? Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The word overcome there is a command. It's in the imperative. It's to say, it's, you know, love one another. There's no difference. Overcome evil with good. Whether it's perceived or real, the evil. Because when we don't, all we do is cause more emotional pain. The word here for wept, it's not the blubbering or sobbing, but it's that welling up of the tears in the eyes as one is trying to hold back the emotions of pain you're experiencing. You ever had that happen where someone really hurts you and you look at them and you're trying to hold it back because you think all this pain, if I let it come gushing out right now, it's, it's not going to be good. And the tears start to well up and you're trying to res- hold restraint and respond properly, but you're so hurt and that emotion is so strong. That's what Joseph is feeling right now. Their actions deeply wounded Joseph. And it would have been very easy for him to lash back at them for their horrible thoughts toward him. How dare you? But Joseph's character holds firm and he puts a sharp stop to the crisis by not repaying evil for evil. Verse 18, his brothers also, after they send the messenger, then they come, and it says, they fell down before his face and said, behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? Joseph, what a man of character. I don't know if I could have done that. I'd be like, you know what? Get out. (laughs) Get out. I'm done here. You sell me as a slave? I, I, I take care of you? I, I, all I've ever done is be good to you? And now you think dad's dead? I'm all of a sudden going to turn into, you know, whatever? Get out. He doesn't say get out. He says, fear not. Joseph gets right to the heart of their problem. He doesn't chasten them for thinking the worst about him. He addresses their unreality with reality by telling them that their fears are completely unwarranted. Fear 
not. And you know what, guys? Any relationship, whether it be marriage, family, or friends, is based upon giving and not receiving. And when you decide to stop giving because you're not receiving, Joseph could have done that here, but he didn't. When you decide to stop giving because you're not receiving, it begins a downward spiral that we keep passing the buck of doing the right thing to the other person. Oh, really? Well, blah, 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 blah. your turn. I'm not doing the right thing. I'm going to lash out back at you. And we, that's what we keep doing. You do the right thing. No, you do the right thing. No, you do the right thing. I don't want to do the right thing. You hurt me. Well, you hurt me. And if you continue that downward spiral over and over again, some of you have been there. Most of us who've been married have been there at one point in time. The sad truth is that it could all be stopped at one moment by one person refusing to perpetuate the spiral. No, you can't move forward until both people are working on the relationship. I get that but you can stop moving backwards and you can give the other person their best shot at joining you in doing the right thing when you do the right thing even though they don't deserve it. You know, love is about laying down my perceived rights and being unconditionally devoted to the other person. You know who taught us that? Jesus. He said, I love you. Nothing's gonna stop me. I'll, I'll become a man. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I have to do. I'll come die for you. None of you want to step up to the plate. I'll come die for you. I'll come live for you. I'll take your place. I will give even though you're still sinning against me. That's what the Lord did with us. We are called to love people unconditionally. This is how Jesus loved us. Even when we were still sinning against him and betraying him, he died for us. For there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. This is the same love we can show others when we have completely put our trust in Him and let Him work in us through the Holy Spirit. It may not seem possible, but nothing is impossible with God. Should you have questions about anything or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.